0: The scripture we're going to focus on primarily is in your bulletin, but I'm going to read the three before my introduction from my own Bible. The first one is a short psalm of David. He faced a lot of threats. Despite his mistakes, which were gross, he was a man after God's own heart, and he kept coming back to God. And you may want to follow along in your Bible or in the bulletin. And I want you to know the process he goes through, which I'll focus on later. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have overcome him. Lest my adversaries rejoice when I'm shaken. Notice the shift. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Quite a shift. Galatians 6.2 is one of over 61 another verses on relationships in the body of Christ. Some are repeated a number of times, but this one is very significant in Galatians 6.2. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. And that word burden literally meant overload. When something is heavy and it can't take the weight. Somebody needs to relieve it. It was a shipping term in the first century. Sometimes ships that are overloaded would sink in the Mediterranean. So it's, sometimes we're overloaded. And then in First Peter, pardon me, second Peter, chapter one, there is something about promises of God that I'll deal with later. and this is it shows you the value of it. In verse three, he says, seeing that God's divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us into His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, in order that by them you might come partakers of the divine nature, having escaped corruption that is in the world by lust." Allow me to pray briefly. Father, I pray that you will take my words and your words that come through my voice. Help me to be accurate. Help me to be clear. And God, some of the things I'll share are very personal. Help me, no matter how I feel, to be clear to these folks. I pray also that you will take what I say to the ear, because that's all I can reach, take it to the mind for comprehension and to the heart for affection and affect our values and our choices. Oh God, please, unless you speak to us today, my voice won't matter. So do what I cannot do and take it away from the ear to the mind and the heart. It's all for you, Lord. Amen. Scene one in the country of Rutherford County, North Carolina, west of here. Elementary school age, I'm not sure what year. Sunday evening my grandpa lived across the dirt road in a very tiny shack and my mom and dad and brother and sister were at an evening church and I was alone. My mother and dad were mill workers. They didn't have much education, fifth grade and uh, seventh grade. But I recall While often on Sunday evenings, for a reason I cannot explain, I would sit on the back steps, look at the mountain range that started about 20 miles away in another county, and I'd sit there and weep. There was nothing that provoked those tears. I just felt empty. I felt a raw, aching loneliness. I didn't understand, and my parents weren't the type to understand or even take you to a counselor. I didn't realize that it was depression, but it hurt. And that happened many times in the adolescence when I just said, Lord, why am I hurting? Why am I empty? I don't know, but I was. Now, I'm having to be brief here, but go to high school. I graduated from Chase High School in Rutherford County played baseball, had a small scholarship to Wingate College later, two-year school then. But I was extremely shy and backward in high school. I look at my picture, I'm not as homely as I thought I was. I think I'm pretty handsome by, by some standard. But I thought I was ugly, and I had extremely low self-esteem. I wanted to date, I had normal feelings, but I was so shy, I would sit in the corner during a Friday night sock hop after football games, which I didn't play, and I would cry so bad my head would throb, wishing I could be normal like those people on the dance floor. And after high school, because I never dated and I didn't do well academically, I had an 81, a solid C average, and I worked hard to bring that up the senior year. And I had no plans to go to college after that. The Lord has a tremendous sense of humor. But all I know is that summer before I went to Wingate, I was alone one Saturday night, feeling lonely, wanted to date a couple of girls, and I I didn't know how to ask, and I figured I'd be rejected. Why bother? All I know is depression set in, and this is painful to remember. I was 6'4 then, same height now except for a little stoop, and it's a 220-pound athlete. And I was so upset at myself for wasting high school years socially and academically, I turned on myself. I was screaming and crying at myself. I took these fists. And you can't hit yourself any harder than I did. I beat myself to a pulp until the headache made me stop. Yes, you're going to see a weak person today, but I serve a strong Savior. I didn't understand it as an adolescent that I had major depression possibly inherited through my mother's line, a tendency for it at any rate. Then, and skipped some years, but in the late 18, 1980s, not 18, I'm not that old, <laughs> 1989, I had, my boys were pre-adolescent. I was doing well at school. I had good professor ratings. I had several books out already, and I was depressed hopelessness, extreme agitation at the least little provocation or stressor. And I was coming apart, almost had panic attacks. And I mentioned I don't want to live anymore. And I had so much to live for. And my wife called some people to intervene because she heard me mention I didn't want to live and feared suicide. A few years later, around 2002, I was standing in a church during congregation And the hymn was a very lovely one. And I stood there and mouthed the words. I wasn't weeping because at that time I felt numb, absolutely dry and parched. And it wasn't because I didn't love the Lord or I wasn't having my quiet times or anything. I was just depressed. And this time it was like a desert parched surface. I couldn't feel a thing. I felt like a robot. And I said, look at all these people singing this hymn. They seem to be smiling and enjoying themselves. I can't remember the last time I felt the presence of God. And then, about a year later, some good friends moved. I'm sure that made me emotional. but there were I just it was a summer day in June, lovely day outside, and I'm alone and I'm in a recliner, and i'm I'm going through the second box of tissues. Nobody's there, so I'm creaming. It. I've been so depressed, so hopeless, so despair, and I couldn't pinpoint real reasons for it. It was exaggerated to my circumstances. And I remember crying, God, don't you care for me? Why don't you help me? Why don't you give me some joy? Do you not hear me? Similar to what David prayed. David prayed. Except I didn't shake my fist, but I cried out to him. "That help Then one time just several years ago, I woke up one morning during a depression episode. I know unless you've had it, you can't understand that. I got up and I felt like I had gained 40 pounds overnight. My gait going down the hall to get ready to go was just slow. I felt like my feet were leaded. I had no motivation, even though I had important ministry to do that day, classes to teach. I had no concerns. I did not want to live, much less teach and serve the Lord. And I remember on the way to the the sports station, I listened to the Gamecock station, unfortunately. um, They have a short local pastor of a large church who does a one minute thing every morning. It's a brief anecdote. And then he he ends it with a little scripture perspective. And he always says, remember, remember, Today, life matters and so do you. I screamed at the radio, I said, nothing matters. Who are you kidding me? Nothing matters. I went to the office, I had some writing to do, papers to grade, a class to teach. Those later went quite well. But it was early in sunlight, I closed the blinds and laid on the couch in my office and just lay there numb. I couldn't function. But then something happened that changed that very day and I'll get into that in a moment. I understand depression, I've read a lot about it, but I've experienced it. I'm not going into all the causes, they're complex, but whether it's biological, or whether it's circumstantial or whether it's spiritual, all of those factor in. But all I know is there's some very godly people in church history, like Charles Had Spurgeon and the great missionary David Brainerd and the hymnist William Cooper, who wrote, There is a fountain filled with blood, and he died in an insane asylum, feeling like he didn't even know the Lord anymore. He believed the gospel, but I couldn't possibly be saved. He's the first one I'm going to talk to over coffee in heaven. There's a lot of misconceptions. I don't have time for those here. But I want to share with you, how in the world has God and his word penetrated my darkness? To my knowledge, I have never missed a class at CIU because of despondency. Somehow, by his grace, I had the gumption to get up. There were a few times I laid in my office with the doors closed in a fetal position, totally immobilized. But then I would go teach, and I was ready for it, and I would teach with passion, and nobody understood what I was going through. There was no correlation for me, even though I know that sometimes sin can cause despondency for a believer who's unrepentant. But I, I have been more joyful at times when I would be too busy for a quiet time and prayer in the morning, and then I was in some of my worst episodes when my spiritual disciplines were strong. For me, there was no correlation, despite the lady who, when I asked for prayer at church one time, saying, Terry, have you had your quiet time today, as if that would solve everything. I definitely believe in the quiet time with God, as you'll see. They wanted easy answers. J.I. Packer once said, too often in this life, he's now with the Lord, a well-known writer, theologian, he said, we often expect in this life on earth what God only promised for heaven. The church in the West has a very poor, shallow theology of suffering, very poor. Well, faith makes a difference. I don't believe depression has the final word in my life. But no matter what causes despondency, there is a spiritual battle to face whether it's totally physical and I'm not responsible or whether I just don't recover well from a hurt or setback, whatever, I still have a spiritual battle to face. What am I going to believe? How am I going to respond to this despondency? I want to share with you today with the title, Can You See in the Dark? Three Ways God and His Word Has Penetrated and Is Penetrating My Darkness. This summer, I've had some rough days. A depression episode can last for two hours late in the day. It can last for weeks on end. In between, I can have a lot of fun. I'm known for my jokes. I gave a comedy routine at a meeting of 40 alumni at CIU recently and had them rolling in the aisle. <laughs> so it's not like I'm this way every day, but it doesn't go away. God in his providence has not taken it away but he has done some things somehow to use this weak man through writing and teaching for all these years, and he only gets the glory. How? What have I seen in the dark? How does he sustain me? And actually, those three texts I read illustrate one of those each. Number one, through prayers of lament, prayers of lament like we read in Psalm 13. Lament, unofficial definition, it's when a believer... Goes before God and he or she's hurting. It may not be depression. It may be somebody hurt you, a betrayal of a relationship. It may be you've lost your job and finances are tight and you wonder why you can't get one. It may be physical pain and illness that come, whatever. And you just sometimes we don't want to be honest with God. But we it is when I give my questions, my doubts, my burdens. Even when it means like David, and to some extent me in that June of 2003 in the den of my home when I was alone, it's giving God our frustrations. Now, there are some people that may think, well, that's not right. You, You can't really complain to God. That's not trusting him. But we'll see differently in a moment. David was called in the New Testament a man after God's own heart. He didn't go and complain about God and his circumstances to other people. He complained to God. He was engaged with God through it all, not other people so much. And so you wouldn't take a lament, a complaint, a hard question. You wouldn't ask the why question if you didn't believe God existed. If you didn't believe somewhere underneath that he really cared and has power to do something, either in you or in your circumstances, why would you lament? There wouldn't be a reason to. So it's not showing a lack of faith. It's showing that we live in a broken, fallen world and sometimes we hurt and we don't always understand it, but we engage him in the process rather than just getting bitter about it. Lament is taking her doubts, frustrations, complaints to God honestly, like I did that September day in 03. The men in scripture, I showed you Psalm 13. I won't turn there, but Jeremiah, this is so meaningful to me. You know, he was a weeping prophet. He didn't have a lot of success in his four decades of ministry, but he warned the people who wouldn't listen about coming destruction and captivity if they didn't get rid of their idols. But he was put in stocks. He was beaten shortly before Jeremiah 20 begins. And And then he cries out to the Lord, Lord, you have deceived me. I'm a laughingstock. People are mocking me he was complaining to the Lord about his treatment as God's spokesman when he gave a hard message that people wouldn't accept. But if you go down in Jeremiah 20, starts around verse 7 or 8. A few verses later, he's saying, he's praising the Lord. But God is with me like a dread champion. I will sing praises to the Lord. Several verses later, he's back to lament. Oh, I woo the day I was born. So I said the man who came to tell my father, you have a son. I wish I had died in my womb and my mother had been eternally pregnant. That is a human condition. But he at least engaged the Lord in it. Now, if the effects of lament are important, you noticed in David that only one exception to... One scholar says anywhere from one-third to one-half of the 150 psalms could be classified as lament for what's happening to the nation or that one person. Many different authors. It wasn't just David. Sons of Korah, sons of Asaph, a lot of different ones. But only one, Psalm 88, does not end on a note of trust. David said, you saw how he cried out, Lord, answer me, please. And then he says, he goes on to say, "God has dealt bountifully with me." He must have, while focusing and engaging God in his complaint, he began thinking of how God had entered prayer about how God had sustained him and Israel in the past. All his blessings. It's a big principle of Scripture: put the past into present tense. Remember God's past faithfulness, even when you don't like what's going on now. It can boost your faith. So David says, "Lord, I, I don't know what's happening." He didn't change the circumstances in those six verses. Probably wrote it at one sitting. But somehow his mind got to focus upon what God had done for him in the past and who he was. You have dealt bountifully me. You were the God of my salvation. Trust came, and I'm convinced it was because he engaged God in his lament. That process is seen through almost all those psalms of lament except that one in Psalm 88. So now I tell myself this. Terry, don't cross a line. There is a, probably an invisible line that I could cross by shaking my fist in the face of God. You, you don't love me, God. I'm not talking about becoming great bitter toward God and being resistant and rebellious. I'm just saying sharing my hurt, sharing my honest question. And sometimes when I sense that I'm getting resentful for God, I don't think he's being who he said he would be for me. I say, God, I know my attitude's cruddy. I need to confess before you that it's not right, but this is where I am. Lord, take me as it is and change me. And it it happens. It's subtle, but it happens. But that trust, that remembering past faithfulness implied in one of his phrases only came after he vented. So I am advocating There is a list outside, I believe Angela made copies, a page and a half of books on depression and suffering and other afflictions, and two or three of them are on lament, and I can highly recommend them. I'm going to quote from two of them. Uh, Michael Card, the singer, singer singer-theologian, wrote one, and he said, I think it's sacred sorrows. Is it wrong to complain by lamenting to God? Doesn't that show rebellion and lack of faith? How can it be appropriate to show my upset feelings and anger to God? Well, why then, he said, does God enshrine so many laments in his word? Why are so many biblical characters shown as disappointed and upset with God? Psalmist, Jeremiah, Job, even Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mark 15, 34. He goes into that in much detail. And then he says, their prayers of complaint are prayers of faith. They represent the last refusal of a hurting person to let go of the God who may seem to be absent and silent or worse, uncaring. Lament expresses one of the most intimate moments of faith, not a denial of faith. It is honesty before God whom my faith tells me I can trust even when I'm not seeing it visibly at that time. He encourages me to bring everything to him as an act of worship, disappointment, frustration, doubt. Only lament covers this kind of faith. A faith that understands God's heart. There's a pastor named Mark Vroegop, V-R-O-E-G-O-P. And uh, he had a, I think, unexpected stillborn birth of a daughter some years ago. And he wrote a very highly regarded book on lament. I think it's A, a Deep Cloud's Great Mercy or something to that effect. But, and, uh, but that list, title is on the book list too. He said, lament is how we bring our sorrow to God. Without lament, we won't know how to process pain. A lament reveals trust, not the opposite, because without hope in God's deliverance or sustenance and the conviction that he's powerful and cares, why would I go to him with my pain? So don't think it's lack of faith. It doesn't have to be. So pray honestly. Be careful, but pray honestly. It's a means of grace To give God our heartfelt, honest prayers, especially when we're alone. Especially when we're alone. But it leads to trust. Number two, second way that God sometimes penetrates my darkness with light, through people in the body. Yes, I need that private time with him, but I also need the body. He often loves us, encourages us, and supports us through other people. Uh, You saw the Galatians 6.2 and the idea of carry your burden. Now, some of you who know that chapter, three verses later, it says bear your own load. You think, well, that's contradictory. It's a different word in the original. The one in verse 2 means weighted, overloaded. And sometimes whether it's relationships or job stressors or hurt or pain, whatever, we are overloaded. And one way God helps penetrate that darkness is through other people, not only through prayer, but through other people who'll pray for us and be with us. I recall in 1989, I mentioned a time when my boys were pre-adolescent at that time, early teen. And even though things were going well circumstantially, strong church, PCA church we were in, My wife's pianist there. Uh, A book had just come out that I wrote. Everything seems to be going well, but I'm coming apart inside and thought I wanted to die. She got this intervention. One of the interventions was an older student who was now a pastor in the area, but not pastor of my church. And my wife called him, knew that he was close to me and said, I'm afraid for Turk. That's my nickname, Turk. You have to know me well to call me that. Well, that evening, it's after dinner. I'm reading the paper. I can't remember if the news were on in the background. And I hear a knock on the door. Skip walks in. He sits beside me. And I didn't know he was coming. And he said, I hear you've had some rough days with depression lately. I said, yes, I have. He said, well, I want you to know if you want to watch TV, if you want to grade papers, if you want to read the comics or whatever, you can, but I'm not leaving your side for two hours. If you want me to pray, if you want me just to listen, I am here. Nothing is moving me for two hours. That's God's grace. That's God's grace. A couple of years later, I mentioned that episode of my uh, lament from that chair, but it was that lament did not immediately change things, but it kept me engaged with God, so I kept going to him. But about that time, Summer had started, and I had an office in the boys' dorm, and that depression episode was still strong, and I recall the cafeteria was open due to a summer class. I met a close friend who worked in administration there, and he's become my best friend since. He saw how depressed I was. I walked to the cafeteria with such a slow gait. I call it a high humidity in the heart. You know, when a very humid days in the south, it's hard to breathe. That's how I felt. Figuratively speaking. And he after he saw how bad I was hurting. And then he went back to his office. I went back in the boys' dorm, nobody was in it then due to the summer. And I got on the couch in the area outside my office and I just lay there in a fetal position. So he came and then he walks in. He sits beside of me. He's weeping. He said, I don't know how to end it for you. I don't know what to do, but I'm here. Oh, did you have a Howard? Those two years, 2002-03, was some of my worst, longest depression episode. Ironically, I don't know who the other names were. It was the highest-rated year of my teaching. God has a, such a sense of humor; he uses weak people so He can get the glory. But I, I call. I came home from church. I wasn't as active on staff then, and I got. And I was taking my clothes off. I was just in my underwear. It's a hot summer day. And i am got my bare toes for our dress, and I'm start rocking. And I can't cry, I'm numb. This is a numb kind of depression. Too extreme. Copper sensitive, cry at everything. Can't cry if you paid me. Robotic, numb, don't want to live. And I'm sitting there, I'm rocking. And my wife calls a prayer warrior in the church. who, who uh, I later preached her funeral service. For 10 years, she could hardly get out of oh. She couldn't drive. She couldn't come to the service, but you call her, she would pray. And so Dolly called her, and I got on the phone. I said, Louise, I can't wait. This was one o'clock. I can't wait till bedtime because that's the only relief I have from this depression. I don't want to live. I don't understand it. And she went to war with me several times that summer over the phone. Said, I have time to call Louise. It didn't necessarily suddenly end it, but boy, it sustained and kept me going and kept me engaged with God through her. I've gone to a good friend's house, he and his wife, Esther, and I've knocked on the door and I said, Esther, can I borrow David? Do you have a Howard? Do you have a Skip? Do you have a Louise? Louise? Because God never intended us for goings alone. His, he shows his love. Now, this, these truths, lament prayers, is not just for despondency, any pain. And needing others in the body is not just for depression or disappointment. I've gone to two people, one of them, who's with the Lord now, former President McQuilkin, who's retired early to take care of Alzheimer's wife. And he's a renowned missiologist and author. And I'd take a stand of questions in his home for accountability, like I, I'm watching this TV. We're not talking porn. We're just talking affairs on those shows. I, I said, I don't want to re- go this channel. Tell me every week if you he spent half hour with me. Go over these questions about my thought life, my quiet time. If I looked taking a second look at a woman who walked by. I'm, he said, you want me to ask you this stuff? I said, yes, there's dangers and too much, too much privacy in the Christian life. Dangers and too much problems. I, I knew he would see me as weak, but I also knew he would pray for me and reprove me if necessary. I need it. I've done that to other people. I give them a list of questions. I can give you those questions for you to adapt if you ever want anything like that. But I needed the body of Christ. I need to receive it, and to receive help, wherever I'm hurting, I need to be honest. It's proud if I say, well, he's going to think I'm not spiritual. If he knows that I have a tendency for lust or wrong thoughts or whatnot, or if I admit my depression and how low I am, they're going to think that I must have weak faith. Well, they might, but you've got to pick the right people, the right people who know their own hearts and their own weaknesses, whether they match your weaknesses or not, uh, it's necessary. It is pride that can keep me from going to somebody and receiving the burden bearing. They can't help bear my burden if I don't admit it. And I can tell you hordes of couples who are elders and churches and everything who have grown children away from the Lord and it hurts them like crazy, they never mention it to anyone even in small groups for prayer because it would look bad. That's why God made the body. But I also need to give it. Maybe I'm not the one hurting. I need to know somebody else who's have a great loss or an illness something some setback we need to take initiative if they're not local write them a letter handwrite a letter How, when is the last time you wrote a handwritten letter it's rare in our culture but when somebody research has verified that when somebody gets a handwritten letter of comfort it means more than a phone call it means more than a face-to-face word because they took the time to write it they didn't email it there's something about a handwritten note of encouragement And remember, if somebody's very ill or whatnot, or you have a lot of reasons to thank God for what they've done in your life while they're hurting, nobody can smell the flowers on their coffin. Give them a verbal bouquet in advance, either face-to-face or in a note of how God has used them in your life. So it's give and receive when it comes to the body of Christ. And it may be applied to accountability. Back, uh, I mentioned the guy who came to my home. I also had somebody else intervene and take me out to lunch one day. They know how to get to my heart. Incarnation. I wrote this in 1989 on the importance of the body of Christ. My load is heavy. My body is spent, is bent. My spirit, too, is weak and spent. Darkness hovers though the sun is high. I'm too tired to pray and too numb to cry. Feeling hopeless on a downward slide. Then you knock and come alongside. Encouraging words, a listening ear, I'm reassured that Christ is near. When pain turns the heart to stone, no one should have to go it alone. In time and space, through thick and thin, God wraps his love in human skin. But now we get to the one I'm most excited about. We've seen the value of lament, honest praying because it keeps us engaged with God and we're engaged with him, we start thinking of what he's done in the past and that helps us even though we don't out of that particular trial yet. And then he instills faith through that engagement to trust him even when we don't understand why. We don't know why, but we know who. Then through others in the body of Christ that requires my transparency to get the help. And that, by the way, may come through a Christian counselor, somebody who understands the human psyche. Uh, they don't take away my depression, but the ones I've used have helped me think through the symptoms and how they affect my relationships with my wife and sons and so forth. But the third one, which is the light that I use most often, is through promises in the Word. God penetrates my, his, my darkness through His Word. It's not a panacea. I can't quote a verse at my despondency or any other trial, and it suddenly evaporates but it sustains it gives me hope that there's something beyond this trial through promises in its work god penetrates your darkness in mine, especially when we preach the promises to ourselves folks the most sin defeating the most hope instilling the most despair rescuing The most ministry-motivating sermons you will ever hear, as vital as the pulpit of this church is, it won't come from your pastor or guest speakers. It's when you preach to yourself. We tend to talk to ourselves all the time. It's what psychologists call self-talk. Whether you're a Christian or not, it happened. And I tend to really be negative toward myself even now, like I was in my adolescence. But do I give a rebuttal to it Whether it comes from the enemy or my own weak temperament when it's when I seem to feel God doesn't care or he would do this What's true how I feel or what God's Word says or when I don't seem to have hope Or when I'm hurting in my old age with chronic back pain and other issues And I don't know if I want to live much longer. I'm pessimistic about the future as I age but the value of his promises we saw, they actually can the key to holiness, according to 1 Peter 1, 3, and 4, is his magnificent and precious promises. Listen, if you remember nothing else today, memorizing the word of God is not just a discipline that makes me spiritual. It, because I'm not spiritual sometimes, it's absolute need to focus my attention on the truth of Scripture. I don't feel his presence sometimes. But Isaiah 41 says... 41.10 says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you. I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Sometimes I feel hopeless. There's mornings before the sun come up when depression was strong, and, I was, and when I was feeling dark inside as the outside was. I remembered Lamentations 3. Jeremiah wrote it, 22 and following. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. I may not be feeling them then, but that's what he says. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And I'd pray that to the Lord. And then go on to say, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him to the person who seeks him. It, it doesn't totally cause my darkness to evaporate, but it gives me faith. It gives me hope that something is going to follow that's better. I may need wisdom. It's interesting that the verse that promises wisdom for decisions is right after two verses, three verses on the fact that we have trials as a Christian. So wisdom in this context is how do we make decisions and handle adversity? And it says, if any of you lack wisdom, James 1, 5, let you ask of God who will give liberally and generously without making you feel foolish or guilty. So when I need wisdom for a decision or when I'm tempted, I don't know about you, but even though I've always been faithful to my wife, I still notice good-looking ladies. And sometimes, unfortunately, I look too long and I have to confess immediately. Short accounts with God is key. But I also... There are times when I'm alone on a trip, and wrong thoughts come, and I remember promises. This is only one of at least two like this in the New Testament. 2 Thessalonians 3.3, and the Lord is faithful, Paul told that church, who will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. And my mind says, Lord, right now, I really want to give in. This temptation is so relentless. It, It never lets up. No matter how long I serve you or how much I say I love you, it's there because I'm still having indwelling sin as a believer. Lord, help me. That's either true, Lord, or it's a lie. And when I come to him, when I come, he takes that temptation away and enables me to say no. Sometimes maybe we don't come, however, and ask. So many verses about depression, Micah 7, 8. Don't rejoice over me, O oh my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. Psalm 42, 43 are two great psalms go together on despondency. In 42, 5, notice he's preaching to himself. Three different psalms, David in Psalm 62, sons of Korah in Psalm 42 and 43, and Asaph in Psalm 73. They don't duress those psalms to the Lord. They're talking to themselves. It's very biblical to preach to yourself. It's giving a biblically informed rebuttal to negative, inappropriate thoughts, whether they're temptations from the enemy or your own weaknesses. You, you don't let them stand. You talk back to yourself what you're thinking. It's the key to my spiritual survival in my life is preaching to myself. But Psalm 42, 5, Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why are you sunk down within me? Hope in God, I shall yet praise him for the help of his presence. And the, another psalmist in Psalm uh, 73, 26, Asaph. And he says, though uh, my heart and my flesh fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And Psalm 62, I think is David again, but he says, my soul, he's talking to himself, wait in silence for God only, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. It's very biblical to talk to yourself. But as long as you're giving a biblically informed rebuttal, you're reminding yourself of who God is, what he has promised, what he has pledged to do for his people, rooted in his character. And sometimes, most of you are young, you're not there yet, sometimes when the body wanes and you're sick or you have a lot of pain and you're pessimistic because of that, and while I'm getting older, it won't get any better, just remember whether it's sadness over loss or whatever, Revelation 21, life in a new heaven, a new earth. And there will be no longer be any death. There will no longer be any tears, no longer any mourning, no longer any pain. Hang on a while longer to that temptation that you think you have to give in to. You're not going to be tempted forever. When you're with the Lord, you'll be like him and then you'll be totally Glorified, and you won't deal with the sin anymore. By the way, this wasn't in my outline, but I got to share it. I was so discouraged once over a conflict with my Asperger son, who knows the Lord. He's 46, lives with us, um, bright, but uh, we clash. I was so discouraged. I was preparing for a message in Romans 8 at my church a few years ago, and Romans 8:30 gives something about whom God has called, referring to salvation whom God has justified, meaning made right legally before God so we have Christ's righteousness applied to us though we still sin experientially. God doesn't hold us accountable for it because we put our faith on the cross. And then at the end, he said, and we have been glorified. Now, glorification refers to our perfection when we're with the Lord. It's future. It hasn't happened in this life. If you think you're glorified, I'd like to know you better. But it's in the past tense, folks justified at the moment of salvation. He called me to salvation. He did something to cause me to see my need and put my faith in Christ. He's called me. He's in the process of sanctifying me experientially. Justified. I have his righteousness. He sees me as perfect. Hebrews 10 says that. But then glorified's future. How can it be in the past 10? That's a rare occurrence of what scholars call the prophetic past. That sounds like an oxymoron. In God's eyes, That when you struggle over your own mistakes and weaknesses and sins and pain, you have to realize someday you're going to be glorified. In God's eyes, it is so certain, it is so sure to happen, he puts it in the past as if it already happened. That's hard to be miserable when you guess that. I was preparing that message. I just had a conflict with my son a few years ago the night before, and nobody was home. I cry a lot when nobody's home. I just started convulsing. I was out of control, but it was for joy. You mean, I won't have any conflict with my saved son in the future. We won't have, he won't have Asperger's. I won't be hypersensitive to his insensitivity to me. Things will be patched up. That promise itself gave me hope. I preached that passage the next day with passion because God had touched me in the preparation of it. Remember, there is a resource list as I wrap up. And there also is a sheet that if you want to put your email down, I can send you your own article that which I summarize. I don't cover everything the same, but I summarize these three means of grace, how God penetrates my darkness. And I can send you that. And it's in my blog is mentioned, penetratingthedarkness.com on depression and faith. I usually do some book reviews and my own experiences to try to encourage others. But the email, I will never use it for anybody else. I will uh, it will never be sold or anything, but I can send you something to follow up this message that you'll get personally if you wish. As I close, I remember one of my favorite verses that I preached to myself, Psalm 50:15. Now this psalm does not promise that we won't have trials, obviously, but God will act in them. And Psalm 50:15 basically says to the Lord, I better turn there I know that verse like I know my dog's name but then I put him to sleep two weeks ago that's been hard but uh his name is Farley and this verse Psalm 5015 it's a very encouraging verse you yeah. call on me in the day of trouble what that can mean a lot of things I will rescue you not necessarily cause it to evaporate suddenly But I will act, I will redeem that pain in your life. I will do something in you or in your circumstances. And then you will honor me. And though I'm not a great scholar with the languages and the language there, the idea of God being honored and glorified is directly linked grammatically to running to God when we're needy to running to God when we're weak. So he can do for us what only God can do. He gets more glory when we're weak than when we're strong, so long as we take that weakness to him. Charles Spurgeon, who suffered from not only severe gout, died in his late 80s, wrote much of his books in bed with feet swollen and he couldn't walk due to the pain. But he also had darkness of depression. Great British preacher. He he wasn't depressed all the time. But he once said, causeless depression, I don't know why, cannot be reckoned with. You might as well fight with the morning mist as fight with its all beclouding hopelessness. And another time, he said, I weep like a baby and I can't tell you why. Oh, uh, one of the books on there is all about Spurgeon's depression. But you don't have to be a preacher to appreciate that. He was ahead of his time in understanding it. But he said on this verse, Psalm 50:15. When we are weak and needy and we go to God for sustenance and he acts in some way, he gets glorified because he does for us what we cannot do. And he said this, listen. God gets from us most glory when we get from him much grace. Wow. When I'm in need of grace for whatever reason, then I'm giving him a chance to be honored and glorified by asking for it. The way you honor God is to plead for his grace in whatever form that comes. All right, I've got one brief poem to write that shows lament. It shows using the word of God without quoting a verse. I wrote this in a time of dark depression about 20 years ago this year. And uh, it was a rainy fall morning. Leaves were falling on the way to class. And uh, I was stepping on some of them. My mood was like the falling rain and the dark clouds. My tears descend like falling rain. Their constant flow reveals the pain of much regret of fragile heart. I can't stop them once they start. With each teardrop, there is an ache. I did not know one's heart could break so many times in just one day. Despondency won't go away. I shout, yet God seems not to hear. You have untouched, it's a prayer to him, my hurt, my fear. Where are you, God of Abraham? Where else should I, the great I am? Like falling rain, despair descends. Are there not any dividends to faith within the here and now? Will you assist me? When and how? Do you not care then what I feel makes dying grow in its appeal? That's a lament. Though it's racked by doubt, my mind turns. I didn't actually study it. I just had memorized verses. To your word, here is what it learns. You gave your spirit. He is near. In time, you'll wipe away each tear. Though I do not know how or when, my lips will smile and sing again. You understand the tears I've shed. Christ also wept before he bled. The cross absorbed his tears in mine. Heart-rending pain serves to refine. You never act except from love. My darkness was designed above for fruitfulness and for my gain. Its grace outpoured like falling rain. Thank you, Lord Jesus. You said, come. You told us to come when we're burdened. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, Matthew 11:28. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am humble and gentle of heart, and you will have rest for your soul.